1: All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com.
0: Hey everybody, Meb and Jeff here for a pre Halloween spooky QA. We got a bunch of really awesome interviews coming up, so we thought we'd squeeze one of these in before we start to get into the wintertime holiday period. So, Jeff, welcome to the show. How's it going? It's good, you know. I've I've just taken nine flights in the past five days, if not more. So I'm a little road weary, but happy to be back in Los Angeles for about a month. Good
1: to be home. Yeah, I'm aware that you've been traveling. You did not invite me to the Caymans with you, which I'm a little disappointed about. You know, they actually pronounce
0: it, I learned Cayman. If you're local, <laughs> like a Grand, Grand Cayman. Yeah, I was I was actually incredibly impressed. It was a global investment conference for the C F A Institute. They've been doing it for a handful of years really well done. There's over 200 people, almost no Americans all over the world. A lot of South Africans, a lot of Canadians, a lot of people from various islands and wonderful lineup. We had Harry Markopoulos, who was an Enron whistleblower, who, by the way, said he had multiple Ponzi schemes still in existence, multi-billion dollar Ponzi schemes, which is just fascinating to me why people would still think they could get away with these sort of dumb things. Wait, he had them? He, he's, them? he's looking into them, so oh, he consistently uh-oh. does them with one Anyway, one of the funniest speakers, he had a great quote where he said, a whistleblower is like a great fart, silent but deadly. <laughs> and I said, if you're a, if you're an accountant with a fun funny talk, kudos to you, because C- CPAs are not known for their, their public speaking. And then a couple other uh, great speakers, really good time, but my favorite part of being down there – Worst part was the Broncos losing, which I, I watched from a little Caymanian bar, which was owned by a Canadian. So there, there was Blue Jays flags hanging everywhere. My favorite part was is checking into the hotel. They they put in every single room. You had canisters of bug spray. Oh yeah, did you come back with Zika? I might. I don't know. I need to go get tested. I, I don't think I saw a bug the whole time. I did have a big welt on my forehead one night. I don't. It's from something biting me. But it, but it was funny because you know that that experience sort of informed I kind of rushed the day before my speech and added some new slides and thoughts and it it ended up being part of that part of the speech and became a blog post that we talked a little bit about uh, you and I last week which was election informed right which is a lot of people these elections coming up I get to ask a lot of questions where people say does this election you know
1: this Hillary winning or Trump winning is going to cause the markets to do X. Mm -hmm. I saw something this morning about a uh, Democratic. A kind of landslide could be awful for the entire stock
0: market. Well, I mean, right, exactly. Who knows? And so you had one where there was an article, I think you said Mark Cuban said, if Trump wins, the market could crash. And mm-hmm. Mark Faber said, if Hillary wins, the market could crash. And so no, no, he said, the world is oh, doomed. Oh, the world, the world's <laughs> doomed. Uh, you know, so no matter who gets elected, the market's going to crash. What's what's the most likely outcome, probably amazing, is a, is a big market rally that nobody's expecting. My whole point of this article in checking into the the hotel inspired this was that you know what we're most afraid of in this case the elections is is not a good example necessarily of what we should be afraid of in the chart that we used in the in the article was from an old barry ritholtz post i'd seen and it's a chart of the animals that kill the most people per year and if you were to query so listeners think see if you can write down the top five hit pause top five animals that kill the most people And number one is almost a million. And just for perspective, shark is about 10 per year globally. Although, do you see that recent YouTube video of the shark getting stuck in the diver's cage?
1: Yeah, yeah, busting out.
0: Yeah, we'll add it to the show notes if you haven't seen it. Poor shark, though. It must have been terrified. But yeah, they had a a cage. Was it Mexico, I think? Uh, Cage diving and this shark busted into the cage and then had to jump out of the top of the cage. Guy didn't look like he got hurt. Anyway... But, so we're obviously very fearful of sharks. Lions, I think, kill about 100 a year. But on the other end of the spectrum is like what you should you really be afraid of. And the Caymanians were, this was relevant, so they knew the answer because of all the Zika going on. Number one is mosquitoes, of course, for malaria and all the other diseases. Two is humans. Although, if you average that out, I bet over time, the humans has got to be up there for higher. Mm-hmm.
1: Three was... What was three? There's some weird ones in there. There was like a tapeworm. There was sales. snails. Top ten. Yeah. Dog was top ten
0: for rabies. Typically, man's best friend. And and snake was actually so you're, you're yeah. reasonable to be. I hate snakes. Reasonable to be scared <laughs> of snakes. But everything else, the the big predators. You know, it's it's so anyway. But the point of the post was everyone's afraid of the Trump elections and and everything else you see in the headlines of the news. Brexit or what's going on with, with Zika or what's going on with, you know, who knows, whatever the news of the day is. But and then we showed the the problem of investing in high fee funds. And the example I gave is I said, look, there currently exists today five asset allocation ETFs, which are buy and hold by design, strategic asset allocation, that charge under point three percent per year. And we have one, and I think the other four are iShares combined total of all four of those ETFs is only $2 billion, which sounds like a lot. But then if you compared it to the 500 plus mutual funds that, manage, uh, that, that charge over 0.3% per year, and many charge above one, one and a half, two, they manage almost a trillion dollars. And so the point of this we are saying is that all these people who allocate to these buy and hold mutual funds and are paying wall street this additional fee of eight billion dollars that they don't need to they're focusing on the wrong problem
1: so well so is this just naivete on the on behalf of the investor or is there a broader behavioral issue going on here?
0: there's a couple things so mutual funds historically the high fee ones and again i'm not talking about liquid alts i'm not talking about people that actually do probably value added something different but this is by definition buy and hold stuff so you're not doing, I mean, in your charter, you're not really doing anything. It's a strategic allocation. So, so high fee is a big one here. So historically, mutual funds have been sold. Somebody comes into a financial advisor's office. They say, hey, you should buy these mutual funds. Financial advisor buys them, forgets about them. Client forgets about them. They hold them forever. Client dies or transfers, they get sold. And so this will be a generational transfer of assets. This isn't something that people wake up tomorrow and say, you know what? I don't like this mutual fund. I'm going to sell it. It's usually when something happens. So an 08 could happen again. In which case, they get washed out and replaced. But very rarely do you see a high expense mutual fund that charges one and a half or two that gets sold and gets replaced with an ETF. No one ever goes back.
1: Well, this seems like a glaring oversight on behalf of the advisor and, frankly, the investor as well. I mean, if you're talking about paying a uh, you know hundred bips or whatever for something that should cost you twenty. That's really no excuse for that. A lot of people don't know, too. You know, there's a huge education gap. So people that hold a lot
0: of these, I mean, our, our buddy Josh Brown calls this mutual fund salad. You'll have an investor that comes into the office and he will say, here's my portfolio. And he'll own 30 mutual funds. And it's, you know, and it just, it ends up, you end up getting the global market portfolio and you feel diversified because you own a lot of things. They have different names from different companies, but really you could buy one ETF and have the exact same exposure. And so it's, there's a lot of problems and reasons why. But it's something that will slowly change. And so when people talk about this ETF disruption, I'm like, look, it hasn't even started yet. It started in a few areas. In indexed equities, you've seen a lot of the flows and Vanguard flows. But in asset allocation funds, I mean, that's a trillion dollars that should be in lower cost funds. So anyway, it's a, you know, and we talk. meanwhile, probably... The irony of this is I probably have Zika now, so <laughs> what I should be afraid of is what I should be afraid of, but it's, but it's, but it's good to be back at home in, in town for a little bit, giving a speech in Orange County on Thursday to the CFA Society, and then uh, in a whole 10 days in New York for a few conferences, so we got, got a few speeches. This was the first time we did this one. Uh, it was a new one, so if you're coming out and you've seen our, our old comic routine, we've got a new one, so come on out and, and, and see some of these new talks. So are we got any Q and A's today? What are yeah. we talk about? Yeah,
1: no, always, we always have great, uh, great questions from the listeners. Appreciate you guys uh, writing in. Keep them coming, and that's that's feedback at the Meb Faber show. Shoot us an email. We'll we'll read it. We should ask. We
0: should tell. Listeners, to start recording the questions. So if you recorded <laughs> this on Skype or audio or how, on your phone, even send it in, and we'll start playing y'all's the questions. How's that sound? We'll try it out. Uh, anyway, it could be or you could email, them, or you could email them in
1: <laughs> feedback on that All right, what do we got? All right, so this week, why don't we start off with some broader, like thirty thousand foot questions? Then we'll narrow down a little bit later. But we had a handful that are more topical in nature, so I figure we'll just start there. All right, one, what are some of the best ways to learn about markets and investing? I found resources like the Wall Street Journal helpful, but oftentimes it seems these articles are more about current news than investing strategies.
0: So we did a number of blog posts over the years, and there's a few called $5 Million FinTech Ideas, and some were media content-based, but there was a few where I said, look, there's a few business opportunities that people should be doing because a lot of it was born out of my frustration with the content space. One is we ended up starting Idea Farm, you know, a curated investment research platform, which, which people seem to love. It's targeted a little bit more towards the pros, but it's kind of like getting an MBA. Honestly, you get two research, three research pieces a week. We think it's wonderful. But there's been other people that have done similar. So podcasts are a great one. We love Ritholtz's, Mike Covell's. There's a few other investing ones. Patrick, who we've had on the show, just started his own. And, you know, of course, reading, you know, tracking uh, in invest with the house. We actually have in the back of the book, which is our highest rated but least read book, by the way. In the back of the book, we have reading lists from a lot of famous hedge fund managers, Buffett, Seth Klarman, all these guys who at some point have said, hey, here's a good reading list. So go read all those books. As far as websites and ideas. So when we were in the Caymans, uh, there's an old Global hedge fund manager who writes a research service Raul Powell, and he lives there um but he started a service called real vision t v so we filmed a really fun hour long video it's high production quality I'm a subscriber, and he said he'd uh he'd let me. Send it out to our audience on the idea farm So if you don't have a subscription go get a free trial So you can watch this video He's really fun, Rao's a really bright guy He's doing a lot of cool things So um, And of course my daily favorite newspaper Abnormal Returns And there's a few, uh, you know, newsletters, et cetera, that we subscribe to. We'll throw some links up. I'm trying to think on top of my head. We're going to have some of our good friends from some of these authors on the podcast in the next few weeks. Other than that, you know, a lot of the traditional media outlets I don't really consume. So I love, uh, I watch a little bit of CNBC and Bloomberg when I'm traveling or in a hotel room or, you know, sometimes when, when coffee's on.
1: It's not something we have on in the office, as you know. We may have sports on the TV. That's about it. I don't know if this is where the, uh, the reader was going or the listener was going with the question, but let me dig deeper okay. on one angle. Well, for instance, when I got my MBA, spent a hell of a lot of time, you know, learning about financial statements, what would you say are sort of the broader tectonic subjects that somebody who's beginning to learn about investing in the markets should focus on in order to sort of get their toes wet? Because I mean, you're mentioning several places to go, but should a investor be worried about learning how to analyze a balance sheet? Should they be looking at how to analyze different uh,
0: ratios? So that's very dependent. We get a lot of questions from people that say, hey, man, how do I get a hedge fund job? I'm thinking about moving I say I used to be a biotech engineer, now you're a PM and, and CIO. How how would I make that transition? And my answer is always it depends. You know, if you want to be, say, a financial planner or wealth manager, there's a skill set and a knowledge base that's much more useful. And that is more of a relationship business. And I would honestly say it's probably less of a Investment related business. So, yes, should you get your certified financial planner designation? Probably. Would something like getting a a CFA help? Not that much. I mean, it will. I mean, it's good to know, but it's incredibly hard three year program. And unless you're actually analyzing individual stocks, which I would argue is not the value add for most planners and wealth managers, you know, it's how to design trusts and do insurance and behavioral coaching. So it's a different skill set. Now, if you said, I want to be a hedge fund manager, or I want to be a quant CTA, or, you know, these have all very different skill sets. So a lot of the quants, I mean, there's a full spectrum. It's a financial engineering masters from Berkeley or, or, Who is it in New York? There's a couple programs that are really strong, but if you wanted to be a hedge fund manager, so in that case, if you are picking stocks, Mm -hmm. you know, learning how to pick stocks is a much different, and even within picking stocks, learning how to short stocks is a totally different skill set than say, you know, learning learning how to be a value added stock picker in the vein of of Buffett or uh, Peter Lynch. So, people often ask me a question. I say it's so broad that. And, and let's say you even want to be a fund of fund manager, then that's more like getting a CAIA designation, a CAIA, which, which I have, that is incredibly useful for learning about the alternative space in fund of funds and allocation and all the esoteric products out there. So it's, it's, it's almost like if someone came up and said, hey, what kind of dog should I get? I say, well, you know, well, if you yeah. live in a tiny apartment in New York, probably not going to want to get a border collie because they need a ton of exercise.
1: Well, a lot of listeners really, I I think, seem to associate with you and find a lot of value in what you do. And knowing you for 25 years, I can't remember the last time that you and I discussed the valuation of a single security. Does that play into your investments at all, or are you purely looking at assets with lots of underlines? And if, if so, then how do you... Do you look purely at Schiller to value those, or is there a whole different set of rules?
0: Well, okay. Again, that, that's somewhat of a broad question. So, yes, I mean, many of our strategies are based in valuation. But it's not me going to visit you know, Google and saying, hey, let's talk to management. Let's look at the balance sheet. Let's work through the true let's get really our hands dirty in the financial statements of the last twenty years and and see if we could tease out something that a quant couldn't, so doing channel checks or renting satellites still i mean that's that's a true fundamental stock picker value added mindset and and again, going back to the book Invest with the House, we had even back in college when I was taking security analysis class, there's a great Checklist uh, that we had posted years ago from Tiger cub John Griffin that that says, Hey, look, you want to analyze a company here 's like a four page checklist of what you should go through and that 's a wonderful way to go about it, but that 's if you 're a true fundamental that doesn 't fit my personality. I would much love to take a sort of for equities or whatever the asset class a quant approach and be able to because historically it 's a great way to be able to get exposure to a lot of these factors. Do I think in a different lifetime, would I have been able to have been a purely focused fundamental guy? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's fun. It's a lot of hard work uh, and can be very rewarding, particularly in the less efficient areas of the market. But again, a totally different skill set and a totally different approach. I mean, if you want to talk about stock valuations, I'm happy to, by the way.
1: No <laughs> I've oh, yeah, I've dabbled in that myself. And despite all my best efforts, I still seem to lose money on specific stocks. So no, nah, it's all right. I look at it a lot. And
0: particularly with. With private companies now so with the angel investing I'm, I'm very curious always with a lot of these platforms and been dabbling as I mentioned on the podcast the last few years and I was looking at one that came across I can't say which platform because they'll ban me because they, they hate you talking about them but it's a sock company and this is a socks that I love these socks they've been <laughs> uh life-changing socks and you would think that a sock company you know, is not going to be... It's an
1: impressive sock
0: to change yeah, your life. Yeah. see. am I wearing them today? I'm not... Well, yeah, I'm wearing them today. They make dress socks, too. So I was reading this this pitch on them, and they said... In the pitch, they said, you know, we do should do six figures of revenue this year. And they were going off at a $350 million valuation. I said, huh, that sounds a little high to be doing... <laughs> less than a million in revenue and doing 300 million. and i'm like first of all there's no way that's possible and i had forwarded it to a hedge fund buddy of ours and said because meanwhile i've been talking about these socks for like three years i'm like dude you have to wear these socks and he said six figures that seems a little odd for the fact that they just raised a 50 million dollar round on top of a 30 million dollar round and i'd emailed them i said you should write. and then, then I, they corrected and said oh no no it's nine figures
1: Totally different.
0: Totally different. Changes things a bit. Yeah, of revenue. So, so yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of a fun distraction for me. I would never bet my assets on it, particularly in the public space. Okay.
1: All right. Sorry, I got it sort of off uh, down a rabbit hole there. So let's return back to the questions. All right. Another broad one for you. What does the typical day look like for yourself and other successful investment professionals? What are your daily habits and routines that lead you to success? What time do you wake up, go to bed? How many hours per day do you read? How do you manage your time? How many hours are you you in the office? Yada, yada, yada. Things
0: like that. I mean, this again, this is going to start to sound old for listeners, but I I think a lot of these answers, so one, it'll be interesting and I'll tell you mine, but it's different strokes, different folks, right? I know people who are incredibly happy and proud to sleep four hours a night and that would literally be a version of like my hell. I I need eight hours. I can sleep more. I'm happy to. I'm not a morning person. I start to get really cranky if I don't exercise, you know, on a consistent basis. If I don't have both social time and quiet individual time, I have a, for me, a, a very big novelty gene. So if I'm not trying out new restaurants or doing new things or learning and meeting new people, I start to go a little insane. So all those show up in the daily routine. One of the coolest pieces of advice I heard, and I am blanking on where this is from, I emailed it out to the, the team at Cambria maybe a month ago because I loved the idea. It, and it was a, from an old management book or interview, and you may be able to correct me because whether you read my emails or not, I'm not sure. But <laughs> it was basically like a, a work style advice. And it, was, it went along something along the lines of this where this manager, each night, he would write down the six things that he hoped to accomplish tomorrow at work in order. So one is most important down to six and you couldn't start number two until you finished number one. And I thought that was a profoundly wonderful way to go about it because how many of us come in, we start to do things and emails are coming in and calls and next, thing you know, it's five o'clock and you've accomplished none of the major things, but a lot of, you accomplished a lot of busy work, you know? And so I, have implemented lists, not to
1: that degree yet. I'm going to try. I remember this. You did send this out. This was yeah. um, a consultant did this for, I can't believe it was turn of the century. It might have been some you know, tycoon or baron who was asking how to be more effective, how to get his employees to be more effective. And this guy gave him this piece of advice for free. The guy implemented it. And apparently it was, you know, he asked if he could pay. And he said, no, you can pay me what you think it's worth if it's effective. And the guy turned around and paid him like the modern day equivalent of like Like a million bucks or something. Yeah, it was huge.
0: I think it it might even been Ford was the the company that he was pitching to. We'll we'll add it to the show notes. We'll dig it up. But I think it's such a wonderful piece of advice. I'm going to try it. And it fits for me personally, because especially a lot of bigger projects and listeners have heard me say this about the book writing i can only focus on like something like that very intensely i get a little bit manic and and do it very intensely for a short period of time so for a lot of these big to-dos it's hard to have them just kind of drag on mentally for me it's a huge drag so compartmentalizing and doing lists for me is a big one as far as standard day it's pretty varied I, i don't eat a whole lot in the morning during the work week i love brunch when i'm you know it's not breakfast is one of my favorite meals but if i eat a big breakfast i'm worthless the rest of the day and i I actually feel the less i eat during the day i'm much more productive so there's the days when when i don't eat till 2 3 p.m just because of things go crazy those are probably by far the most productive i am i don't know why so maybe we'll start doing a what do you call it? Like an intermittent fast where I just don't eat until 3 p.m. every day. We'll, we'll see. Probably terrible for everyone in the office. i am be really cranky. Other than that, I mean, a lot of reading. You know, I still struggle with being able to curate the best things that come across my desk. So I end up reading a lot of stuff that's probably... Not that related necessarily to the day-to-day, but but might be interesting. And for me, that continues well into the evening. And so uh, I'm trying to read a little more non-market-related stuff.
1: What's your take on giving yourself exposure to a wide array of content and subjects versus really narrowing down. And underneath that subject is is a philosophy I've heard where some of the most effective people tend to know their niche and they become experts at it versus trying to be more of a jack of trades and you know, having a wide exposure.
0: Well, this goes back to my fav- favorite advice quote, which is from the most successful hedge fund manager of all time, James Simons, who said, again, I can make the cliche either way. And, I, and I'm, 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 this is be the last time I bring up that reference because people are probably getting really tired of it. But, yes, do I think a broad-based education is very important? Sure. Do I think that once you have that, you know, starting to specialize and do things, is that important? So here's a good example. And this goes back to thinking about the whistleblowing. You know, years ago, we were writing about F-squared. And if you're not familiar, F squared is, is at the peak over a $20 billion ETF strategist that was a quant approach. And they were doing uh, ETF strategies that looked like they had an amazing track record and they were raising money hand over fist. So being a young quant at Cambria, we had just started the company and we would get these marketing emails all the time. And I would look at the strategy and say, damn, that's a good strategy. Look at that historical record. And as with with my analysts at the time, I said, let's replicate it, knowing what we know about their strategy. And it was a momentum trend style global asset allocation strategy, which is obviously something that I know quite a bit about. The problem is for most advisors who are very well versed in investing, if you don't spend enough time on investing history or theory, you would have looked into that and just said, great, amazing track record. You wouldn't have questioned it because you would have said, huh that high of a sharp ratio that low of a drawdown that's probably not gonna fly either it's the michael jordan of investing or something is fishy right and so we had we couldn't replicate it and so i wrote a blog post about it f squares lawyers called me said take this down really yeah so i took down about half of it and i said look It's whatever I you know, and and I was too young to say who am I. We managed like ten million dollars at the time. I'm like, what? These lawyers sue us It takes takes out our whole company. We can't afford to defend ourselves. Even I said, you know, I'm in no business to be picking fights with these big guys because there's still a chance that it was reasonable. That they, they were doing what they sh- said they were doing. Was your article actually calling them out or just... Yeah, it's still up there. I mean, you can find the skeleton of it. Okay. And then I, you, we'll get to what's happened since. And if you looked at a lot of disclosures, a lot of historical stuff, it just didn't add up. It, it, just, it stunk. And a lot, of the problem with a lot of these shops that are doing the sketchy stuff is they never charge a low fee. You're never going to find a shop... I mean, you may, but in general, they're charging... 2% a year, plus loads, all this other stuff, which makes it even harder to, to, to fill the track record. Long story short, if you're not familiar, what happened was is that they had had a index historically, one, that they said was real performance, which wasn't. So that's a obviously fraud already. Two, when they implemented it, they shifted that index a week into the future. So they had a weak crystal ball. So they took the index and made it even better. <laughs> So yeah, okay, right. Again, again, a couple problems, and then and it perpetuated. And then there was a bigger firm that then distributed their strategy through mutual funds. So no one was really doing due diligence. I took one look at this, and I'm like, something is amiss. And the, here's the problem. Here's the irony: is that and so the SEC went after them, find them, not nearly enough. Companies is it now out of business? Someone bought them, the, the ashes. But the parent company who is. Distributing their mutual fund, it's knocked a billion off their market cap. Wow. Because but it was a fraud, share fraud. It was an easy fraud. And then the irony is that is the actual underlying strategy works. It's a good strategy. Momentum and trend. We took their strategy and took it all the way back to the 20s and said, hey, look, this is it works just fine. There's no reason to and so there's been a couple, and we've tweeted about this a few times. These marketing guys, if you're a marketing guy listening to this podcast, take me off of your distribution if you're committing fraud because I've gotten two where I'm like, that. those numbers are just not, it's not possible. Mm-hmm. Again, we've gone off on a huge tangent. As always, if you didn't have a long perspective in history on markets in general and all strategies, and let's say you're a financial advisor or a fundamental analyst, and you say, oh man, look at this quant strategy that's doing XYZ, that's reasonable. Well, you wouldn't know necessarily. And so, so there, yes, there's a lot of benefit to having a broad-based understanding of markets and strategies, but it also is a huge benefit to, in this case, with the F-squared, for example, to have very deep domain understanding because then you can say, oh, wait, well... I mean, that's one of the challenges, though.
1: Clearly, you can't be a master. It's very difficult to be a master at everything. So, like, even in your book, Invest with a House, you talk about how stock picking is extremely hard. Why not outsource that to these amazing managers, the Buffets of the world, who have consistently outperformed over the years? So, in essence, you are putting your trust in these guys just as somebody was putting their trust in this fund that was obviously mismanaged. I can't remember what philosopher it was, but at some point he says, you know, I don't really care. I'm not going to evaluate what you say. I'll first evaluate you and whether or not I trust you to say it. And then that's sort of whether or not he'll buy into the subject. So here, how do you know who to really trust? I mean, because it sounds like the Calvin and Hobbes financial, I mean, a uh, philosopher. <laughs> well, look, so
0: there's getting to be a much higher and harder bar for active managers. And you're starting to see a lot of institutions. I saw in my Twitter feed today three very large institutions. It was like Calsters, Alaska, and one of the New York pension funds bringing more and more assets in-house because of these problems. And it's particularly hard for pension funds and or financial advisors when you have a client that's not on board with the mission statement or or doesn't understand that well and, and having an active manager that underperforms. It's a huge headache and a huge problem. So many people, the solution is just passive investing. I'm done. And it eliminates a lot of the conflicts, a lot of the headaches, and that's fine. Now, does that mean that it's not, and the, the example we always give in the last few podcasts is the Buffett example where he's underperformed seven of the last eight years. Everyone would have fired him on the planet. Do you think he's a bad manager? Well, no, of course not. He's one of the best managers of all time. It's just hard for an investor to, to stick with a, an active manager, and all of the evidence shows they don't. They sell them after a couple of years. Mean reversion happens. This manager does great over and over and over again. So, if you're going to do active management, you have to. And we we've said this. One, write down your policy portfolio. Write down your plan. Say, you know what? I'm going to hire this manager for these reasons. We're going to give it 10 years or 20 years, whatever the number is, because otherwise just go put your money in an index. And I think that's a reasonable strategy. We actually, when we gave my speech, because we saw some stat that was clearly wrong that in a newspaper, it said a third of individuals have financial plans, investment plans. I said, there's zero chance. And I asked this CFA meeting over 200 CFAs, how many of you have an investment plan? Two people raised their hand. And so and that's a realistic number in my mind. And those two are probably financial advisors who have done it for all their clients. So, you know, to, for the active managers, it's, it's, it's a hard, it's a very hard
1: for the end investor to live through it. This ties into a, a great question, actually, from a, a listener that's on our list here. It says, the recent studies have shown that we less sophisticated investors tend to not stick with strategies that have multiple losing years. Given that strategies do sometimes fall out of favor, for instance, the dogs of the Dow, what would be a prudent strategy for an investor to use to decide if the current strategy is just in a down cycle or if in fact the strategy has lost its effectiveness?
0: First of all, I much prefer cash cows of the Dow, which is a shareholder yield approach rather than dogs of the Dow, which is just dividends. That's
1: actually going to lead to our next question. So hold on.
0: hold on. (laughs) Summarize the question for me
1: again. How do you know when to get rid of an asset class or strategy? You're in a strategy. How do you tell if it's just sort of having a few years of down versus if the strategy has completely lost effectiveness and you got to bail entirely? Okay. So if you rewind to asset class level, For the
0: asset class level, you should know why you're in them in the first place. So, stocks, you're owning part of a company. You're owning a business. You're getting paid because business makes money. For bonds, you're essentially the bank. Those have long term expected returns. And if you have reasonable expectations, you know that stocks can decline. Any country can decline 80, 90%. On average, the market cap global portfolio, probably half. 50% 50% drawdowns, and can have many losing years in a row. Bonds have, many of the sovereigns have declined in the U.S. U.S. government bonds have declined 50% real after inflation. So understanding that, say if bonds decline 50% again, that shouldn't surprise you. If stocks decline 90%, that should not surprise you. So you're in it with that small chance of that happening. You shouldn't, when stocks go down 50 or 80%, say, I wasn't expecting that because that's happened. So you should be fully prepared for that to happen. So it's not broken. (laughs) Even if they go down that much, it's not broken situation. And then there's other asset class. I mean, in the same vein, same thing with REITs, with commodities, with the main asset classes, you should understand what's possible. It's a harder question for active managers and active strategies. So in particular, we've talked a lot about factor strategy. So dividend investing is one, right? That We just talked about dogs of the Dow but other ones, is that, again, understanding those strategies can go through many years of cycles of under and out performance, and this is a topic that's been on the media a lot lately with research affiliates and AQR, et cetera, talking about factor cycles where you should be more interested in those type of strategies when they've done very poorly. So when dividend stocks have done very poorly for a while, you should be more interested. When dividend stocks are trading at a cheaper valuation than history, you should be more interested rather than the opposite. But also that requires you to look at when they've done really well. So dividend stocks for the last seven years, 15 years, you want to be getting rid of them when they're expensive. You want to be getting rid of them. A lot of people never do. They do the opposite, of course. Mm-hmm. They underperform. They sell them. They never sell them when they do. They do well. And the hardest part, and so that's hard already. Individuals, it's hard for them to find valuations of baskets, other than just you know yearly performance, which which is a pretty good way to gauge it. But two, so an active manager, and this is the hardest. So you know, Dave Einhorn, Greenlight, long short manager, crushed it had amazing outperformance for many years, and then has struggled in recent years. So do you say to yourself, okay, is it because value is just not done much since 07 and Buffett, the same thing? That's a totally reasonable estimation. Or is it because he only thinks about playing poker now? Or is kind of... Moved over a little bit into global macro investing, which may not be his wheelhouse, or is it because his assets are too big? And these are questions that institutions struggle with. And, and I, for many of them, I mean, again, it's like having a checklist. You need to have a checklist for managers, just like you would for a stock. Hey, did he just get a divorce and he's kind of going on tilt? These are all checklist questions. And it just went in order from probably easiest to hardest, from asset class to passive strategies to active strategies. In active strategies, particularly where then you're betting on, you know, the jockey, where that where you say, is this person I'm betting on his special ability in his team and or approach to, to do this? Whether it's Seth Klarman, Warren Buffett, David Einhorn,
1: that's the hardest of them all. Yeah, it's tricky. It's a lot more opaque. I mean, you don't really know what the the Underlying issue is,
0: and, and the individual, the investor asked the question, and this is a common belief where he said, you know, a lot of retail individuals struggle with this, and a lot of institutions look down on the retail and advisors say, oh, well, you you individuals, you do dumb stuff over and over. Well, no, no, the institutions just they do the same thing, and we see it everywhere. We see I mean, the the study that we reference always is examined academic study examined over three thousand hiring and firing decisions, and the. Fired manager that's going out has terrible three year returns. The one they hire has amazing three year returns. And then what happens the next three years? The one that was getting fired does great, and the one that's getting hired does terrible. I mean, it's, you know, it's human nature. And so it's not just retail individuals. And, it, and it's tough too, not even from whether you're looking to hire or fire a manager, but even understanding the interplay between a client and an advisor i mean the harvard example right now
1: do we talk about that on the podcast we've written about it so the harvard
0: harvard endowment one of the most successful endowments all time arguably i think might be the no you
1: talked about it with greg fisher maybe
0: a little bit okay anyway they just printed a down year minus two percent forget the 2009 27 down year they had but the crimson which is the editorial newspaper and everyone's howling about this is unacceptable Because most other endowments did 1% positive where they did minus two. So it's meaningless underperformance. So a couple takeaways. One, you know, it's an active mandate. So you will underperform many, many years. Two, minus two percent is meaningless. But three, if you go back seven, eight years when Harvard was crushing it, or eight, nine, ten years, all the complaints were you guys get paid too much. And so this is an example (laughs) of a trend that is a very hard interplay between The managers of the fund and the base where the base isn't on board and that and that can be for totally it it could be an impossible situation where the students and the faculty say you guys are getting paid too much. It's a public or a private institution, but very public facing endowment and the managers say we can make so much money elsewhere on Wall Street and we 're getting paid not as much, and our outperformance has saved more than the management fees it 's kind of an unwinnable situation so yeah. unless the, and the same thing applies to a financial advisor and a client, unless you both can get on board with what 's going on there 's going to be huge dislocations, and that 's when people get upset and you know that 's you know, my biggest nightmare is a client coming in and saying oh i 'm hugely surprised by the performance of what 's going on in our portfolios because that means we didn't do a good enough job educating or at least talking about it with them, you know, because it, it's and that's when problems happen. And and then that's when people behave the worst.
1: Yeah, I think a, a difference in expectations from a, a time perspective in returns is such a huge issue. You know, you always reference or it seems like. You're far more comfortable referencing much broader, longer uh, investing returns, a decade, if not longer. So many retail investors seem to be looking at what happens in the next 12 months, and there's a huge discrepancy there. Next quarter, next week. Yeah. All right, so actually tying back to the next question, you referenced the cash cows of the Dows versus the dogs of the Dows. A listener writes in, In episode 22, the formula for expected stock returns at MEB states includes dividend yield as the first term. Remember, that was when you were referencing yep. like future returns. Uh, you took the dividend yield out of the assumed growth rate. Why not shareholder yield instead? Since later in the episode, you talk about how bad dividend yield is.
0: The listener is referencing the Bogle. It's not my formula. It's Bogle's. He published it 25 years ago. And it just basically says future stock returns can be in a simple formula of dividend yield, starting dividend yield, earnings growth, and... Earnings, dividends, growth, and a change in valuation. It's a simple formula. Buybacks end up getting reflected in the dividend and earnings growth formula for the expected returns. However, if you are to select an individual stock based on, it, it's different. One is are you screening for current companies based on their characteristics? And the other is, what are you projecting the future returns of the market to be? So the buybacks change the equation of dividend. And they, they play out. It's, kind of, it's a wash, is what I'm saying, is they play out in the equation because the, the buybacks reduce share count, which changes the overall picture, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're looking to screen, the reason why we say you need to make a differentiation between dividends and buybacks on an individual company is you're ignoring half of how the company distributes their cash flow, and this is on a trailing basis rather than forward, you're ignoring most of the picture.
1: Okay. I don't know if I answered that yeah. the right way, but if it didn't get too confusing. but In essence, a wash, if you're looking for more, on, on, a, on a more market level, it's a wash. If you're looking stock-specific, then you need to factor it in.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's a wash in the sense that the buyback whatever happens with buybacks so whether there's net buybacks no net buybacks or share dilution will show up in the other numbers and which is not the case if you just looked at a stock and said i'm going to buy the stock based on dividend yield
1: well you're ignoring everything else all right so let's dig a little deeper here and some trend and tactical questions all right first is just topically address the tax consequences of being tactical
0: You always have to be hugely conscious of taxes. And that's not just tactical. It's for buy and hold. It's for where you put your stocks and bonds in a taxable or tax-exempt account. It's what type of stocks do you hold? You know, we did a post earlier in the year on how much you should avoid dividend stocks and replicate them with a value strategy with no dividends in it. It's much more tax-efficient. And so, you lay on top of that tactical strategies. Well, obviously, this doesn't apply to tax-exempt accounts because you're not paying on on the taxes, but also for transaction costs. Mm-hmm. So, you have to take all of these things into account. You know, I mean, look, depending on the strategy. So, there's a paper we sent out to the Idea Farm recently about a lot of factors. So, value, quality, momentum, etc. Some of those, depending on how they're designed, have higher turnover, which means you're going to ha- likely have higher taxes, and higher transaction costs. So you need to factor that in. A lot of these studies are published gross, and so you need to factor in. And then second, you know, think about where they're held and in what structure. ETFs can have 200% transaction costs and in many cases, never distribute taxes. Mutual funds can't. Mutual funds, a lot of people are going to get hit this year in particular with gains. You know, At the end of the year, you'll get mutual fund. If it's turned over a bunch, you're probably paying taxes on that. You could buy a mutual fund, have a losing position in that mutual fund, and still have to pay taxes on gains, hmm. which is a horrible situation to be in. But it happens every year. So, when you buy a mutual fund, you can actually look Morningstar's and others' report what their expected gains that are that are held within the fund. Most ETFs don't. So, most. I mean, if you look at the spiders back to '97, they've never distributed capital gain ever. And going back to the disruption of mutual funds, the active segment of the equity market with mutual funds hasn't even sniffed being disrupted yet. There's like almost no active equity ETFs, which have a vastly better tax structure than mutual funds do. There's there's a lot of parts to that question. So one, yes, you need to be aware of the strategy, how it's generating turnover with transaction costs and taxes. And if you do
1: it active, where it's located, is it in tax exempt? And what is the structure? I still don't understand that lack of disruption yet. I mean, the the fee differential between an active ETF versus a mutual fund seems so significant. It kind of ties back to what we were referencing earlier in this podcast. Is it just lack of awareness?
0: Let's, Let's think of the motivation. So look at the recent Wells Fargo scandal with people opening up investment credit cards for people that had no idea and didn't want them. So who was motivated to do that? Well, the employees were because they were getting bonuses to open up new accounts. So they're motivated to. Well, I mean, f- this is illegal and fraud, but let's give a let's give a better example. You go back to the real estate bubble in two thousand six, two thousand seven. At various levels of the nodes it made total sense for the people to behave the way they did. It made sense for the mortgage originators to drum up as much business as possible because then they could pass it off to the people who were packaging them. And the people who were packaging them, it made sense for them to do as much as possible because they would pass it off to the investment institutions. It made sense for, in the big short, for the stripper to buy three houses because she could get hugely wonderful terms, you know, yada, yada, right? right yep. But you put all them together and you get very bad behavior. So in the high-fee mutual fund world, for example, you have the same behavior. You have salespeople who are hugely compensated on these funds that, let's say, charge 1.5% a year and have a 5% load and 1% 12B1 fees. All those fees are designed to ensure that fund gets sold. And so, that's a totally reasonable example for these people to push these junky high-fee funds because they get paid the most on those. And ETFs, because one, they're half the cost of the average mutual fund or less, it's around 50 basis points for the average, or 0.5% for the average ETF, one25 for the average mutual fund. So it's less than half. So there's already less juice for people to get from selling them. And two, you, they don't have sales loads. They don't have 12B1 fees. These are all investor-friendly things, by the way. But it removes part of the incentive. Look, Cambria doesn't have hardly any distribution force, right? And it's much harder to track. It's, it's part of the incentives, but, but people will only exist in that sort of investment world holding those for so long. Look, financial advisors for the longest time have held all these junky mutual funds. The average financial advisor that's been in business, I forget if it's over 10 or 20 years, owns 200 mutual funds. Think about it. 200 mutual funds. You could probably ask them to identify more than 10. They probably couldn't because they bought them and they held them and, and moved on the financial advisor is getting pressured because in a world of ten to twelve percent returns, which we had at various periods, your one percent fee and the one and a half that's sitting in that mutual fund doesn't matter as much as in a world of five percent returns or four and you're charging, still charging one and one and a half, where do you think the financial advisors will start to make the cut? Well, they'll start to make the cut in the mutual fund because they charge way too much and they'll start to use lower cost funds, which is great, which is what they should be doing, but the fees are a much higher percentage of the overall performance. So yes, I don't know how a lot of those funds will exist. And you may see the scenario where the flows, which have been consistently out of mutual funds, active mutual funds into ETFs, you may see a point where the dam breaks. I don't know. You may see it in the next crisis. You may see it, who knows what may happen, but you may see that really start to accelerate. And some of these funds, you know, that don't, that are
1: traditional, the high fee mutual funds, I don't know they, I don't know how they exist. So um, armchair investors out there listening. I mean, we've kind of talked earlier about if you have to be great at fundamental analysis or whatnot, there's all these things that, can take up tons of time to become a master at but researching any individual security you're in and the costs associated with it it's not that hard and it seems like it has a significant impact on your longer-term returns so in terms like practical steps here where do they go etf database like how can you learn we
0: put it in one of our books that people spend more time researching their television purchase than they do on their retirement situation (laughs) Yeah, it's not surprising if you think about it. By the way, Wirecutter, great site for if you buy anything <laughs> electronic. I love it. It's like a it's like a Yelp for uh, anything. I, I don't think I bought anything for my house not on Wirecutter in the past two years. Anyway, what are we talking about? Would so, you
1: say in terms of resources, ETF database? Is a where good do way people to look find out info? Um, yeah.
0: Morningstar is classically wonderful. ETF.com, ETF database are both great. Morningstar puts out a couple publications, one called ETF Investor, which is a, a great overview. I, I pay to subscribe to it. What else? I mean, in, even some of the issuer sites, Vanguard site, iShare sites, they have a lot of good education. I, th- I think there's not, in ETF.com still puts out a ton of great research on on etfs in general but morningstar is kind of always the default if you want to look up a fund or screen for funds or figure out what's what's going on but in general that you know we think the disruption is just just beginning now does it now again i've said this a million times this does not mean that if you have a very high value add michael jordan manager that they shouldn't be getting getting paid a percent a year percent and a half if you're simons at medallion getting paid two percent a year they used to charge four and 40 which is amazing (laughs) although ironically a lot of their newer funds haven't done as well some have they had to close they they opened up a managed futures fund and shut it down anyway doesn't mean that you can't charge high fees and have great performance and great offering so I, I'm not I'm not one of these crazy people that's just like index you have to pay as little as possible. No, I, I think that for the buy and hold stuff that you're doing nothing for, pay as little as possible and go look for alpha elsewhere, and then you still be mindful of fees
1: and, yeah. and structure. All right, another tactical question here. I would be interested to hear a discussion of the pros and cons of protecting the downside by buying out of the money puts the relevant investment versus using trend following to protect against the downside.
0: We've seen out a couple of publications that look at both. I mean, trend following is nice because it still has a positive expected return, as does managed futures. I just had the funniest, by the way, it's someone I did this interview, and I kind of have this weird monotone Midwest Southern mashup accent, <laughs> which by the way, you know, Apple now does the transcriptions. And have you seen this? Do you have an iPhone? Uh, it, for the new yeah, operating system, for voicemails, which I hate listening to anyway, they will transcribe them. Does it get your accent down? No, it gets everyone right except for my mom, who has just the most ridiculous southern accent. And hers, it just, <laughs> like, it, it translates it basically into Latin. It's really <laughs> funny. Uh, I haven't told her this yet. But I also tell her mom, if you leave anything more than a 15-second message, I, I, I'm not going to listen to this. If you, if you want to talk for minutes, call me and we'll talk. But she has conversations on my phone, which I was like, oh, sweet. Now I can just read the transcript. But the transcript for her doesn't work. So anyway, I gave a speech, and <laughs> the the person who ran it texted me, and they said, hey, were you saying Trin, T-R-I-N, or Trim, T-R-I-M, following? And I said, that's a really funny funny question because both of those mean something totally different trend by the way t-r-i-n is a technical indicator i forget what it stands for it's something like the daily tick or new highs trim obviously it it ends up in somewhat of a pg or r-rated question um and i said oh no no no. i said trend t-r-e-n-d trend following so trend following trend following still gives you a positive expected return as does managed futures puts if you buy a basket of puts, you should have a negative expected return it, because it's, you're just buying insurance. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not reasonable particularly tactically to add puts to a portfolio. You could buy a basket of
1: puts that at certain times would be a wonderful hedge. Well, if you go longer term, seems like if you get it right on puts, your return's going to be a hell of a lot more than on the trend uh, do, does, does it balance out over time? Depending on how you do the trend. you know. Again,
0: it's, there's a lot of million different ways to do it. And same thing with managed futures. But puts to a traditional portfolio of equities or puts on everything to a traditional portfolio, of stocks, bonds, REITs, commodities, will it reduce your return over time? Yes, probably. Will it reduce your volatility and drawdown? Maybe. I mean, it probably will. It's like an insurance. And so periods like an 08 periods it would have done great obviously 1987 would have done unbelievable 2000 2003 maybe it, it, you know there's a lot of caveats to the, the roll methodology to how far out you're doing it but yeah. a lot of the tail risk hedge funds we I mean we have one filed we're we're going to launch one at some point because I think it's a great way for people to get exposure to a basket like that And, of course, if you wanted to short a basket of puts, you could just go short the ETF. But but I think it's a reasonable – for a lot of people, I mean, again, these big losses, if they can buy some insurance and reduce the drawdown – and lower
1: the return. I'm cool with that. What, what are you doing? Buying maybe 12 months out and rolling a monthly?
0: Yeah. You, I mean, again, the, the short-term puts, you're losing the most to the, the time decay. So the longer stuff that you would then roll, you know, however you do it, once a quarter, once a month, once a week, I don't think it matters that much. But yeah, if you look out to 12 to 14 months, you lose less time decay. And, and volatility is rel- relatively cheap right now. You know, you you start to buy those when VIX is up around thirty, forty, fifty, and it's
1: you're paying I, a lot. had not been that high in a long time. It's been a while. All right, I think we're getting kind of close here to a uh, a long episode. When we do one more question, one more call it a day? yeah. Let's assume I can handle risk, or that I am a heavy risk taker. I can handle an eighty percent drawdown and stick to the strategy for many years, no matter what. Should I then put all my money in the asset class with the highest expected return? Let's say I would currently go all in emerging markets or just all in Russia. I would rather be very concentrated and not go for a basket of cheapest countries. What's your opinion on this?
0: I thought this would actually be a fun book. This is a book idea that I was thinking about the other day where I was to say, if someone asked me, Meb, I don't care about highest risk adjusted return. I don't care about you know the best portfolio that I can live with and low drawdowns. I just... Show me the money. What is the biggest return I can get? How would I put that together? And what's the best way to do that? I think that'd be a fun book. We were going to call it Big Returns. First of all, I would never just want to go all in on... First, back up a second. There's no way that guy can withstand 80% drawdowns. No one can withstand <laughs> 80% drawdowns. 50, 50 is one thing. Eighty is 80 is a lot. Let's say you can, hypothetically. I would come up with maybe four strategies that were probably uncorrelated... That would give high returns, but that have a very high chance of either blowing up or having large drawdowns. So if you do a option selling portfolio and you do straddles or strangles, biased in the direction of the trend, do it across 10 or 20 global markets, that's a good... High sharp ratio Short ball product And I don't know That that actually exists You see the put rider the option riders Out there Usually they only focus On the US stock market Mm -hmm. But if you diversify We we did research on this a, A dozen years ago It's a great portfolio stream and you don't run the risk of blowing up like most of these guys do that simply write options on the u.s stock market and then if you look at the option selling funds you google on my blogs. So there's we'll a lot add them to the show notes we used to do posts on this where there's like these six option funds unbelievable sharp ratio because they have these one percent returns every month and then explode and lose all the money right <laughs> but if you diversify that and come up with ways to be smart about it I think that's a great high-returning portfolio. You pair that with a managed futures, I think that's actually a pretty cool allocation. Then maybe do a leveraged micro-cap quant strategy. You could do long-only. You could maybe short out some of the market exposure. And then, yes, you could add a tactical bucket where you're buying the bombed-out stuff. That's the CAPE ratio stuff, which is having a monster year this year. A lot of the global countries are, are... I mean, Russia is up 30%. Spain's up, or not Spain, Europe's still lagging, but um, Brazil's up 70%. We wrote an article on this at the beginning of the year, you know, cheapest stock market in the world. So, Mm -hmm. podcast listeners, hope you you put all your money into Brazil. Just kidding. It
1: seems like, though, answering this guy's question, you would not endorse a single asset class or single country. I mean, you still, even with a heavy risk taker, you want to spread out a little bit.
0: Yeah. I mean, you could come up with enough high expectancy bets or high return expectancy bets and at least put them together to come up with a return stream where you're not, it's not all in on the roulette table. Or all in on, on one single outcome. Hey, maybe he just inspired us to write a new book. I I said I'm done writing books, but this would be, I think it would be a fun one.
1: I like the idea of selling sort of uh, directionally tilted strangles. Yeah, it's,
0: here's the challenge. It's, it's hard to model. So you have to go to someone like CSI, who has this historical option series, which you got to remember is multiple series per year. Then you got to find the correct strike price, then you gotta align it to the futures market or whatever market. And then you need a basket of about ten to twenty of those instruments. So think about how long that takes to back test. And so we did it and it is reasonable, but again, I mean it's a it's a huge pain. So if any readers have done this, have you seen research on this, there was a book that came out about a decade ago that was on option writing in this format. I don't think there's any funds. IASG is a great CTA and options database lets you look at performance for a lot of these funds. There was one or two that might have been doing diversified option selling, but I don't. I don't know that they exist anymore.
1: We'll have to look real quick. Back to the idea of buying puts as a uh, protection. How far out of the money would you go? Well, I think you go anywhere from
0: strike at the at the price at the market. It's pretty pricey though. To all the way down to you know minus twenty percent price, and you could talk about deltas and everything else. But but in general. It, it depends on what you're... Again, it totally depends on your goals and expectations or what are you trying to achieve. Right. Yeah. And you could also do spreads. You could do all sorts of other stuff um, that give you all your various outcomes. Because some people say, you know what? I don't care about losing zero to 20, but I don't want to lose more than 20. And some people say, no, I just want to I want to reduce some of the upside and add some... In. You know, there's a million different ways to do it. Okay. That's all I got today. Why don't you uh, take us out? Cool. Well, look, if you find yourself in Orange County... Thursday, October, what is that? The 17th, I'm giving a speech to the, no, sorry, 20th, 21st, 21st, uh, giving a speech to CFA Society. I'm in New York for an entire week, giving three speeches, then Richmond, then DC. If you're in one of the cities, we'll post it to the travel show notes. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. We always welcome feedback, questions, mailbag, feedback at the MebFavorShow.com. As a reminder, you can always find the show notes and other episodes at MebFavor.com forward slash podcasts. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Overcast. And if you're enjoying the podcast, leave us a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.